everyone. If you have a Bible this morning, I want you to turn to the book of Genesis chapter 18, if you would. And if you don't have a Bible, we've got plenty of extras, our ushers. Be glad to give you one. Just raise your hand and follow along. Seems like we can't turn on the news or listen to the radio or read the paper without hearing something about Caitlyn Jenner. So it seems appropriate this morning, interestingly, that we'll be addressing a passage that has much to say about sexual and gender identity. And so we did send out an email, but I do want to mention that this is a rather explicit passage. So if you have children in the service and you would rather them not hear this, um, that, that won't be offensive to us. We just wanted to give you a heads up. But it seems to me as Christians, it's really important that we learn how to respond to this very sensitive issue that's going on in our culture. Obviously, Christians are being stereotyped as narrow-minded bigots, and so what we want to learn how to do is say, hey, listen, what does the Bible say? And then the Bible says, the servant of the Lord is not to be argumentative, but to be gentle and patient, and to correct those who are in opposition in hopes that God might grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. So the passage that we're going to look at is a passage that's new to some of you, familiar to some. It's the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. But the interesting thing is, is as we read this, we have to understand and be reminded that this is not just some book that some fellas decided to write, but we believe that holy men of God were moved by the Lord to write this, so that what, what this passage teaches about sex and about homosexuality is not man's ideas, but that to disbelieve and to disobey the, the Bible is to disbelieve and to disobey God. So let's pray, and then we'll take a look at this passage. Lord, open our eyes now as we study together. And as we talk about this sensitive subject, may the Holy Spirit use your word in a manner that will be very helpful to help all of us to grow and learn. Thank you that the Bible is so practical and relevant, and I pray that you will speak to our hearts. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. I want to remind you as we go through this passage that God is not anti-gay, nor is he anti-sex. God created sex. He created it before Adam and Eve sinned, and it's not just for procreation, it's for pleasure within marriage. But like any other sin, when men begin to, to take a good gift from God and to twist and dis distort it, then it brings God's discipline, it brings God's judgment. And so pick up with me as we begin in Genesis chapter 18. Now, we're in verse 16 this morning. Last week we saw that three men came to visit Abraham. What we're going to learn from the passage this morning is that none of these were human. Two of them were angels. One of them was the Lord. Verse 16 says, Then the men rose up from there and looked down toward Sodom. And Abraham was walking with them to send them off. Now suddenly we realize that one of the men is the Lord. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Now we've all been in that setting, right? Hanging out with a couple friends and one of them says, Should we tell him? Right? You know what that feels like. Yeah, tell me what, tell me what. And so God says, should we tell Abraham that we're about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? And interestingly, the reason why God decides to is told in the passage. He says, here's why I want to tell him, verse 18. Since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed... For I have chosen him, now pay careful attention to this verse, very important. I have chosen him in order that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord 
by doing righteousness and justice in order that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. Think about the book of Genesis up to this point. God created the heavens and the earth. He created man, and it was very good. And we see that God desires to bless, right? But when Adam and Eve sinned, it brought curse, it brought estrangement, it brought condemnation, and it brought corruption. So once Adam and Eve sinned, they became infested with this sin nature that we all have. And as you're reading Genesis, you're like, here's this loving God who wants to bless. Cain kills Abel. We've got the people killing one another. God sends this flood at Noah's Ark. They get off the flood and Noah gets drunk. Then we have the Tower of Babel. We have this constant sense that man is in rebellion against God. Right? And that's what the Bible teaches, that on this planet there's about 7 billion people down here, and most of them really could care less what God says. So it's always been God's design to bless the nations, to bless people. And the means by which he does that is ultimately through Christ. But he also does that through his chosen people. And so I want you to notice as a Christian that we are called to follow Abraham's example. God says, I chose him, verse 19, so that he could pass on this heritage, that he would command his children and those after him to do right, to follow the Lord. See, and that's why as parents, we need to understand that our obligation, our privilege, our commitment is to do everything we can to pass on the Christian faith. You can't just send your kid to youth group or hope that putting them in a Christian school is going to suddenly turn them into a Christ follower. But at the same time, understand why. It's because God wants to bless you. He wants to bless your kids. And then as you're walking with him and doing what God wants, then you're going to be a blessing to others. And so here we are thousands of years later, and every one of you who's a believer is called to follow in the footsteps of Abraham, to do what's right, to walk with the Lord, whether you're married or not married, whether you have a family, because this is how God blesses people. It's through the obedience of Christians pointing people to Christ. Now, God reveals to Abraham that he's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Look at verse 20. He says, the outcry of Sodom is great and their sin is exceeding grave. And I'm going to go down now and I'm going to see if they've done according to its outcry, which has come to me. And if not, I will know. Now, those of you who have read the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, we have a tendency to think that the only thing going on there is homosexual behavior. And that's, that's, that's a very narrow understanding of Sodom and Gomorrah. If you read what the prophets have to say about Sodom later in the book, there's far more going on in Sodom than just homosexual behavior. There's great wealth, but there's great injustice. They have no regard for the poor. There's adultery going on. There's murder going on. And yet, it's, it's a very opulent city. So it's not like they're just a whole bunch of people who are living homosexual lifestyle. The whole city was full of rampant sin, but it was also full of rampant wealth. And you might stop and ask yourself, well, then why was Lot living there, right? We learn from the New Testament that Lot is a believer. The Bible says while Lot was living in Sodom and Gomorrah, his righteous soul was tormented by what he saw. But yet, we go, then why was he living there? Well, think about it. Where did he come from? He was living with Abraham. Well, what was that like? Living like a nomad in tents, scraping food from the earth out in the intense heat, 
no real protection from predators and enemies. And here's this luxurious, well-watered city with all kinds of entertainment and attractions and pleasure and wealth and safety and the opportunity to accumulate a bunch of stuff. Abraham chose to forsake this world. Lot chose to indulge in this world. And here he is, stuck in the thick of it, living there, and you're going, Lot, what about your kids? What about your family? Your, your, your children, your children aren't going to be able to, to, to see the gospel. You're not being a testimony. You're compromising. Look with me in verse 22. Then the men turned away from there and went towards Sodom while Abraham was still standing before the Lord. And Abraham came near and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? So what I want you to see here is now we have an example of praying for someone you love to be rescued from the destruction of sin, okay? Many of you have someone you love that's not walking with the Lord, that's not keeping the way of the Lord, and, and you know that there's nothing you can do to change them, but there's one thing you can do, you can pray. And so Abraham, because he knows that his nephew Lot is still in Sodom, he begins to plead with God. And I would encourage you that this is really important, that we plead with God for the well-being of those whom we love, those who are away from God or lost. So notice his, his boldness to plead with God. Verse 24, suppose there's 50 righteous people in the city. Will you, will you sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay righteous people with the wicked, so that righteous and wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you. This is a really good verse. Look at this verse. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly or do what's right? Just remember that. At the end of the day, you can look around and say, why do good people die? Why do bad people seem to have no problems? But one day, at the final judgment, God's going to deal justly. Okay, so even in this life, we're like, oh, does, what kind of God? Listen, God is not unjust. And at the end of the day, he will deal justly. So the Lord said, all right, if, if you can find 50 righteous people in the city, then I'll spare the whole place, verse 26. And Abraham answered and said, now, Lord, I venture to speak, though I'm but dust and ashes. Suppose there's, suppose there's lacking five. Will you destroy the whole city because of five? And he said, no, I won't destroy it if there's just 45 there. Verse 29, he said again, Suppose there's 40 there. He said, I won't destroy it on account of 40. They said, don't be angry. I'll speak 30, maybe 30. I won't do it if I find 30. And he said, now behold, I venture to speak. Suppose there are 20. And he said, I won't destroy it on account of 20. And he says it again. Lord, don't be angry, and I'll speak just once. Suppose 10 are found there. And he said, I won't destroy it on account of the 10. And he go, man, Abram was relentless. But I want you to think about this, that persistence in prayer might seem annoying to you, but it's not annoying to God. In fact, God invites that. He tells us that he wants us to persistently pray. Jesus called it importunity. Continue to plead with God. In fact, in Isaiah, there's a verse that says, you who remind the Lord, give him no rest until he, until he establishes Jerusalem. So it might seem weird to us, but it's not weird to God to keep pleading with him night and day saying, God, reach this person, please, I love them. Don't, don't say, oh, I already talked to him once about it. So we see this, this compassion to wrestle with God. And I think in Abraham's mind, he's like, well, listen, if God agreed to 10, we got, we got Lot, we got his wife, we got his 
his daughters, we've got sons. Whew, man, that was a close one. God about destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham didn't know there weren't even 10 there. Chapter 19. Meanwhile, now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. Now remember, they didn't show up. First of all, angels in the Bible, when they're in heaven, they're very odd looking. Multitude of wings and eyes. When they're on earth, they look like men. So they weren't naked butted cherubs. There's nowhere in the Bible that angels look like that. So as far as Lot was concerned, he just saw two Two men coming, two strangers. Now, just like Abraham, when strangers approached him, he lavished them with hospitality. That's one of the marks of being a believer. And so Lot sees two strangers coming to the city, and because he's a believer, he's going to lavish them. It says, when Lot saw them, verse 1, he rose to meet them, and he bowed with his face to the ground. And he said, now behold, my lords, please turn aside into your servant's house. Spend the night, wash your feet. Remember back then they wore sandals and that was a cultural custom. Then you can rise early and go on your way. And they said, no, we'll spend the night in the square. Now, back then in those little cities like that, they had an open square where your animals could stay and you could sleep on the hay. But Lot knew what this city is like. He's like, no, you you really don't want to do that. So verse 3, he urged them strongly so they turned aside to him and they entered his house. And he prepared a feast for them, and he baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Before the men lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house, both young and old, all the people from every quarter. Now, this is all the men, not just a couple pervs. This is all the men, it says, and they called to Lot and said to him, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may have relations with them. Let us have our way with them. Can you imagine? But Lot went out at the doorway, and he shut the door behind them, and he said, please, my brothers, do not act wickedly. I have trouble believing that that was Lot's normal way of interacting with others. I think Lot probably was like a lot of modern-day Christians. Well, I I I don't say anything. I just witness by my life. Because I want you to notice that the moment now he brings up the subject of right and wrong, It's going to get real ugly for him. I don't think it was Lot's normal custom to say, don't do that, that's wicked. Hey, this is wicked. We're not doing this. So now Lot finally makes a stand. He's living among wicked people, doing wicked things every day. The Bible says his righteous soul is tormented by what he sees. And finally, he's going to speak up. And watch how quickly he lost his friends. Now again, He's no paragon of virtue. Look what he says in verse 8. Listen, I have two daughters who have had no relations with man. Let me bring them out to you. Do to them whatever you like. Just don't do nothing to these men as much as they've come under the shelter of my roof. And you go, what? Listen, if I didn't read in the New Testament, Lot was a believer, I would have been certain that this guy was a godless pagan because that's worse than unbelievers. But look at verse 9. They said, stand aside. Furthermore, they said, this guy came in as an alien. In other words, the new kid on the block. And already he's acting like a judge. Now we'll treat you worse than them. So they pressed hard against Lot and came near to break the door. They're going to have their way with Lot. Now, Now, here's something I want you to think about. I frequently hear this. People will choose to follow Christ. And they'll say, Tom, I don't get it. I'm losing my friends. 
And I go, what do you mean you're losing your friends? Yeah, they mock me and, and, and they don't want anything to do with me now that I'm following Christ. And I'll go, listen, those were not your friends. Those were your sin companions. And as long as you sin with your sin companions, you're in. But step back and say, I'm not doing that anymore. And watch how quickly the world turns on us. And this is what the Bible teaches, that if you're going to live godly, we're gonna, if we're going to do what's right, men love darkness rather than light. If everybody loves you as a Christian, it's probably because you're flying under the radar. Because you're not identifying yourself with Christ. You're not letting people know that, hey, I'm not doing that because that's wrong. And the Bible says this is why the world hates us. This is why it hated Christ, because it testified against sin. And so our culture is putting enormous pressure on everybody to say, you can't call something wrong, because look what happens. And we go, well, we're not here to please men. We're here to, to love people and do what God says. And so fortunately, these angels rescued Lot. Verse 10 says, the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into his house with them, and they shut the door. And they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they wearied themselves trying to find the doorway. It's one of the problems with these movies. Remember the movie Noah that was out and then the whole Bible story? Do you remember what they did with Sodom and Gomorrah? It was ridiculous. The, 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 the angels became ninja warriors, right? So the angels have swords and they're flying around and chopping people up and blood's flying all over them. Going, this is why I go, sometimes better. I don't even watch those kooky movies. Read the Bible, okay? They didn't chop them up like ninjas. They smote them with blindness. Verse 12, then the men said to Lot, who else do you have here? Lot said, a son-in-law, your sons, your daughters, whomever, you, oh no, the, the angel's still talking. Whoever you have in the city, bring them out of the place, for we're about to destroy this place, because their outcry has become so great before the Lord that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. And Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law, who had married his daughters. And he said, get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy the city. But he appeared to his son-in-laws to be jesting, which again makes me think, was this normal for Lot to say, listen, you guys, you see everybody else is living around here? That's wrong. And God's going to judge that. And listen, we're not going to do that. And the thought of God judging and destroying them, he tells the son-in-laws, and they, they go, ah, he's, He's, he's going, what's, he's a nut, right? It makes me wonder if this is the first time he's ever spoken up to his own son-in-laws, right? Talk about a terrible witness. They think he's messing around. They think he's jesting. It's one thing if they don't believe it, but it's another thing if they go, gee, that's not normal for, our, for uh, Pop to talk like that. So who knows? Maybe he had been pleading with them, but it doesn't seem that way. When morning dawned, verse 15, the angels urged Lot, saying, Get up, take your wife, your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of this city. But he hesitated. Now, don't miss that. But he hesitated, right? Why did God put that there? But he hesitated. Because Lot, like many Christians, wanted to have the best of both worlds. He wanted to have the pleasures and sins and comforts of this world, but he also knew he belonged to another world. And if that's you, if you're going, you know, it's pretty hard to really break away completely from sin, don't be like Lot. And especially, we're going to learn, don't be like Lot's wife. Because notice verse 
16. The men seized his hand and the hand of his wife, the hand of his daughters, for the compassion of the Lord was upon him. God had to drag him out of there. And they brought him out and put him outside the city. And it came about when they brought them outside that one said, escape for your life. Do not look behind you. Don't stay anywhere in the valley except to the mountains, lest you be swept away. I want you to think about that. Do not look behind you. When I first read that, I was like, why not? I mean, that'd be kind of like watching the fireworks, you know, to watch brimstone and fire come out from heaven. The reason God was telling them, don't look behind you, was not because, oh, I don't want you to see the, the flash of, 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 of sulfur coming down. The idea of looking back was, don't be double-minded. Don't start thinking to yourself, I'm not sure I want to leave, right? If you've ever read Pilgrim's Progress, you remember when Pilgrim finally leaves his home, his family won't go with him. He puts his hand over his ears, rushing away from the city because they're pleading with him, come back, come back. And Jesus, remember, he picked up on this when he said, remember Lot's wife. So the idea here of looking back was not like, don't peek back and see it. It's don't let your longings for the sins of this world draw you back. So take note of that. Don't look back because we're going to see that in the future. So Lot's afraid that he can't make it to the mountains. So he says in verse 18, Oh, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight. You've magnified your kindness, which you've shown me by saving my life. I can't escape to the mountains. This disaster will overtake me and I'll die. Behold, there's, this town is near enough to flee to it. It's small. Let, let me go there. Is it not small that my life be, may be saved? And he said to him, Behold, I grant you this request, not to overthrow the town of which you've spoken. Hurry and escape there, for I can't do anything until you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the town was called Zoar, which means small. So here's Lot and his three daughters, and they get to this little town. Verse 23, the sun had risen over the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. People look at that and they go, oh, here we go. One of them brimstone and fire trying to scare me. I'm going, wait a minute. Listen, this is not a story that somebody made up. This happened. You go, well, where is it? Well, most likely, it's somewhere under the Dead Sea. There's a, there's a high sulfur content in that area, and that's where it was, okay? And the Bible says in the book of Jude that when God sent brimstone and fire out of heaven, it became an example of the coming judgment of hell. So when people talk about brimstone and fire, they're doing us a favor. They're warning us of coming danger. God overthrew all the cities, all the valley, all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew of the ground. Verse 26. But his wife from behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Now when I first read that, I'm like, Really? A pillar of salt? I'm picturing like a little jar of Morton salt. But there are actually pictures of salt pillars back then. They look like half-melted snowmen. It's not like this was the first time there was ever like something like that. But God wasn't going, you peak. She didn't want to leave. That's the point. Right? And that's why many people aren't rushing to be Christians. Because when you think about it, you have to decide, do I love this life? Do I love living for myself? Do I love the comforts and pleasures of this life? Or am I willing to make a break with this world because I want to live for my Savior 
and live for the world to come? And that's, that's a question that each one of us has to ask personally. Jesus said, remember Lot's wife. Verse 27, Abraham rose early in the morning, went to the place where he stood before the Lord, and he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he saw, behold, the smoke of the land ascended like the smoke of a furnace. And it came about when God destroyed the cities of the valley that God remembered Abraham and he set Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities of which Lot lived. Two things to think about. Number one, what must have gone through Abraham's mind when he looked down there and he saw that fire coming up and smoke? Oh, dear God, (laughs) my nephew Lot, you destroyed him, right? But secondly, I want you to notice, God didn't deliver Lot because of Lot. He delivered Lot because of Abraham. It says God remembered Abraham, and he sent Lot out. So don't let anybody tell you that prayer doesn't matter. That prayer doesn't help. That prayer of righteous people can affect and move God. And that living for the Lord can have an influence on other people. Now, if anybody you would think would have learned from this, it would be Lot and his three daughters. Like, wow, we were living with wicked people, totally compromising. Let's get a new start. But instead, much like when Noah got off the ark, we see this constant downward spiral of corruption. Look at verse 30. Lot went up from Zoar, stayed in the mountains, and his two daughters with him. For he was afraid to stay in Zoar, and he stayed in a cave, he and his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old. There's not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of the earth. Let's make our father drink wine and let's lie with him so we may preserve our family through our father. The more you read this, the more you go, Ew. I want to wash my mind, right? And you think to yourself, Don't these girls have any character? And I'm going, Yeah, well, the apple doesn't far fall from the tree, does it? They probably heard their dad say, here, take my daughter, sleep with them, right? So, so the perversions of sexual sin and incest and, and all kinds of things. Listen, this didn't, this didn't begin in our generation. It's been going on throughout history. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with their father and didn't know when he lay down or she rose. And it came about on the morrow that the firstborn said to the younger, behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight. Then you can go and lie with him that we may preserve our family through our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. The younger arose and lay with him. And he didn't know when she lay down or when she arose. One commentator said Lot was a buffoon. Do you want to point out a side note here? It's one of the dangers of alcohol. Is when people were under the influence of alcohol, they do stuff they have no idea what they just did. So I want to caution you to be really, really careful. The Bible doesn't say that to drink alcohol is a sin. But alcohol can be dangerous, and it can destroy, and it can bring about things that you'll wish you could spend the rest of your life wishing you could have back, and you can't. So what was the consequences of this? Look at verse 37. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. We don't know exactly what that means, but Alan Ross suggests that it, it probably comes, a play on words, min of, which means from my father. 
So she named her son from my father. Now, this is no side note. He's a father of the Moabites. You go, who are they? Look at verse 38. And as for the younger, she bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami, which normally would mean son of my people, but it can also mean son of my descendant. So it looks like maybe these girls gave their kids names with this subtle hidden hint that they actually came from their own father. Oh, and by the way, he's the father of the sons of Ammon to this day. You go, well, who are the Ammonites and the Moabites? Well, when Moses wrote this, he's, he's about to take the children of Israel back into the promised land. And he's telling them, you have to go in and wipe out all the people of Canaan because they're so wicked. They're sexually perverted. They're evil. And two of those enemies were the Moabites and Ammonites. And so this would have been ominous for the people as, as Moses first told them the story to go, so, so the Moabites and Ammonites, that's how they got their start? So you go, Tom, this is pretty depressing. And I go, yeah, it is. So what are we going to do about a passage like this? Well, I think there's a number of things, and I want to spend some time talking about them. Number one, you should think about this. We ought to learn from Abraham and Lot the importance of prioritizing the spiritual well-being of your family. I don't know how else to say it, but fathers, your wife and your kids are really important. They're more important than your job. They're more important than your ministry. They're more important than your golf swing. And Lot compromised his family, but God said, I know Abraham, that he will command his children to keep the way of the Lord. Now, at the end of the day, none of us have a recipe for how to have godly kids. There's no guarantee in the Bible. If you do these six things, your kids will be godly. But if they're not, let it not be said because we didn't go down swinging. So there are a lot of things we can do to spiritually lead our family. And I would suggest that the number one thing that you can do for your family is be a man and a woman of prayer. Pray for your kids. I stuck a verse up years ago on my refrigerator. The Lord said, I'll pour out my spirit on your children. And this one will say, I'm in the Lord's. And this one will write on his hand, I belong to the Lord. And this one will call on the name of the God of Jacob. Pray night and day for the well-being of your family. And if you're single, pray that, that, that you can walk with the Lord and that, that you can have a godly influence. The church is a community where, where we encourage one another. You, you can't just send your kids to Sunday school, youth group, and Christian school and think they're going to walk with Jesus. Deuteronomy 6 says, you should love God with all your heart and his words should be in your heart and you should teach them diligently to your kids. And so for some of us as parents, we've got to get in, get in the game and go, you know what, I've been a hypocrite, but I'm going to change. And I need to ask my parents' forgiveness or my kids' forgiveness. Well, let's pray for one another. It's really hard to raise kids in these times. But we pray and we say, God, help us to prioritize our families. Secondly, don't let your attraction to the sinful pleasures of this world turn you back from following Christ. How many Christians are compromising? They're living in a way that's so ungodly. And they're like, well, you know, I mean, everybody's doing it. The Bible says, do not love the world nor the things that are in this world. For the, the, the things of this world, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life, that stuff's all going to pass away. If you live for God and you do His will, you live forever. 
And so let's learn from Lot, not to get too comfortable with this godless world. Third, we learn from Abraham to pray for lost people. If you don't regularly pray for lost people, then I wonder, do you really care? You're like, oh, brother, I want people to be saved. Do you? If you don't pray for lost people, your life is basically either saying, I don't believe prayer matters, or you don't care. 1 Timothy chapter 2 says we should pray for kings and all who are in authority because God, listen, God desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And Christ gave himself as a ransom for all. You say, well, Pastor, that might take some time. Yeah, it's going to take some time and some labor, right? Start with the 10 most wanted list. You can't come up with 10 people that you would love to see saved and pray for them every day. I believe one of the reasons why the church in America is not influencing people more and winning more souls of Christ is because we don't pray. God has chosen to use intercessory prayer to reach not only lost people, but also to reach wayward Christians. James chapter 5 says the effectual, fervent prayer of righteous people can accomplish much. And then he says this, if anyone strays from the truth and someone turns them back, you've saved a soul from death. How do you turn them back? You pray for them. And how many of you have been turned back to the Lord because of the prayers of godly grandma? But many of you are still in that throes of going, I've lost my loved one. Don't give up this prayer that God can reach them. I can tell you from my own experience, God is gracious. Fourth, we really need to talk about the whole danger of sexual sin in our culture. It's not just people who are out there in the world, it's even people in the church. Second Peter chapter three says, beloved, be on guard, lest be carried away by unprincipled people, you'll fall from your steadfastness. You are gonna find people who call themselves Christians who are gonna say, it's okay to have sex when you're not married. It doesn't matter. It's okay to have homosexual relationships. That, 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 that's just old-fashioned. That, that you just can't go pick up some guy. But, but if you love each other, right? We live in a world and in a culture and in a country that's desperately sexually corrupt. And the Bible says that's going to bring the wrath of God. And we're called to come out from among them and realize how dangerous and how serious this is. And to pray that we live holy lives. But the one I wanted to spend some time is on this whole gender issue, this whole homosexual issue. I want to first of all refer you to an article on um, John Piper's web page, Desiring God. He has an article called, I think we have a, a slide about it, it's called, is, or, or, or uh, How Should Christians Respond to Caitlyn Jenner? Do we have that? Oh, okay. We, I thought Christy said she had that. But anyway, it's probably be on our webpage. But it's called, How Should Christians Respond to Caitlyn Jenner? We're not supposed to mock it. We're not supposed to laugh at it. We're one, we, should, we should have compassion, right? Because here's the thing. We need to understand something. That people who have same-sex attraction, most of them are going to tell you, I didn't choose this. I didn't one day go, I just want to be attracted to people of the opposite sex, Right? So we need to be sensitive to that. We need to be compassionate. We need to pray. It's a wonderful little article. And it talks about how we as Christians need to have an opinion on this. And we need to be loving, but we need to speak the truth. And we need to understand that it's far bigger than just gender identity, but, but sexual sin, 
the identity of marriage, but particularly, we definitely need to have an idea of what does the Bible teach about homosexual behavior, all right? And so what I want you to start with is this, is the Bible says all we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, right? So there are going to be people, and there are people in our church who are attracted to the same sex, okay? That does not make you gay, okay? That does not make you a homosexual. But if you choose to live that way and practice that, the Bible says no homosexual will inherit the kingdom of God. So understand this, that there are Christians who struggle with same-sex attraction, but they're Christians. In fact, we're going to look at a video in just a minute of a pastor who, 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 who will share his story. But what I want you to think about is this. A person, as they wrestle with this, they read the scripture. God's not anti-gay. He's anti-sin. He, he doesn't want people to fornicate. He doesn't want them to commit adultery. And he doesn't want them to practice homosexual behavior. He calls them to a life of repentance. And he empowers us to turn from our old ways to do what's right. And so we ought not to assume that just because someone becomes a Christian, we go, ew, you're attracted to the same sex? Why, why would we think that suddenly becoming a Christian, they might not still be attracted to the same sex. We don't do that with addicts. We don't go, ew, you're a Christian now and you still want to use drugs? Or, or a fornicator, ew, you're a Christian now and you're still tempted to fornicate? We have to have compassion and realize that the gospel is offering forgiveness and power and strength from Jesus to live differently. And so I'm gonna, we're going to show a video and, I, and, and this guy who's going to share his brief story, Pastor Bob and Pastor Jonathan Master know him he has a little book called Is God Anti-Gay? It's only about 80-some pages. I read it this week. It's a great book, and we have some in the back. They're for sale for $8. I'm, I'm pretty sure we're going to run out and we're going to buy more. If you go get one, it's not because we're going, oh, you must be saved. We all know people that are struggling with this. I would really encourage you to read this book, but let's listen to Sam's testimony because it'll give you some sense of compassion. When did I begin to realize I was attracted to men. I think probably in my 20s I'd, I'd had experiences of, of same-sex attraction as a teenager but I hadn't quite registered those I don't think but in my 20s I, I really began to twig that it was very much the case for me that it, it didn't seem to be a, a phase I was kind of coming out of um, and that it was something I needed to, to think about and come to terms with. I think it's because the word gay today is very much bound up with an identity. Uh, when someone says they are gay, they, they tend to mean not just that they're attracted to people of the same gender, but that that attraction is who they are. And for me as a, as a Christian, I, I don't take my identity from my sexual attraction. I take it from the fact that I've been created by God in his image. He's made me as a, as a man and that as a Christian, I'm, I'm now in Christ, and that's how I am to see myself. And I think another issue is, again, people tend to use the word gay to mean a lifestyle. It's kind of a, a part of the whole package of how someone sees themselves and lives. And I experience same-sex attraction, but I'm, I'm not wanting to act on those feelings. As a Christian, I, I'm wanting to uh, live in obedience to God's word, and therefore I, I think it it's more accurate to, to speak in terms of experiencing same-sex attraction than to say I am gay. 
I think we need to assume that there will be Christians in our, our congregations, Christians watching this even, who are, are battling with these feelings of attraction. And as Christian communities, uh, we need to make it an issue people feel safe to talk about. Um, I first mentioned it to my pastor because he made it very easy to in some comments he made in a sermon. He assumed that there would be people who were battling with this and he encouraged us to share it um, and made us feel safe doing so. So we need to create a culture where it's okay to talk about, it's safe to talk about, where we're expecting there to be Christians who will battle with this. Uh, we also need to make sure we don't define people by this issue. Uh, so if someone does share that they're, they're experiencing these sorts of feelings, uh, we want to listen to them, we want to support them, we want to find out how they are, what things we can do to help, how we can be a good friend to them. But we don't want this to be the only issue that we ever talk to them about. Uh, they are far more than their sexual temptation. So I've written this book, Is God Anti-Gay? It's uh, part of a series of books looking at different questions that Christians ask. It is one of the big questions we get asked as Christians these days, but it's also an issue I think many Christians are wanting to think through. And so I've written it, I hope it will help people who will want to understand something of what the Bible says about homosexuality, but also help people to, to think about how they can encourage those who are struggling with same-sex attraction. And it may well be that people watching this will know people in their church for whom this is an issue. Or even there might be people watching this for whom it is an issue themselves. And I really hope this book will help. As we close this morning, I want you to turn in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 in the New Testament. I want us to look at a closing passage that relates to this. One thing I want to remind you, and that is, particularly in this issue, and this is one of the good things about this book, is there are a lot of people who are trying to take the Bible and say, oh, no, no, when the Bible says it's wrong to be homosexual, that just is talking about just picking somebody up. But if you love someone, that's okay. Please understand that and this book will help you with that. The Bible doesn't say that's okay, okay? And that the Bible says there will always be people who will twist Scripture to their own destruction. But I had a young man ask me one time, he said, can I be a Christian homosexual? And I said, no. But you can be a Christian who struggles with same-sex attraction because the, the whole nature of what it means to be a Christian is that Christians are people who realize that they are sinners, right? You can't be a Christian until you recognize and admit that you're a sinner. There are two types of sinners, irreligious sinners who just lie, steal, cheat, do whatever they want, and religious sinners. Sometimes religious sinners are the hardest to reach because they don't think they're sinners. Oh, I don't do bad stuff. If you're a religious sinner, I'm going to tell you something. You're lost without Christ. You don't get to heaven by being religious. But what being a Christian is, is I understand that when Jesus went to that cross, all of the things that I've done that disobeyed God, he died for and paid my penalty. I should be punished for my sins like Sodom and Gomorrah. But Jesus bore all of God's punishment for sin on the cross. And he shed his blood and he said, it is finished. And then he offers forgiveness to liars, thieves, adulterers, homosexuals, self-righteous religious people. 
but you come on his terms. You don't go, Jesus, could I be a Christian drug dealer? Could I be a Christian adulterer? No, you repent and believe the gospel. So for some of you, or me, I, I did involve myself in a lifestyle of drugs and stealing and all kinds of stupid sexual things that I'm embarrassed and ashamed of. But I love this passage. And for those of you who might not yet be a Christian, this passage invites you, come to Jesus, be washed from your sins, be forgiven, and then learn to have your new identity in Christ. So if you're struggling with same-sex attraction and you're a Christian, you're not a homosexual. If, if you're struggling with attraction to other women beside your wife, it doesn't mean you're not a Christian. It means you're struggling with lust. If you're struggling with pornography or any sexual sin, if you're struggling with stealing or lying, that doesn't mean you're not a Christian. But if you continue to live this way and it doesn't bother you, and you could care less what anybody says, then you're probably not a Christian. Because to become a Christian means to come and say, Lord, I'm a sinner. Would you forgive me? And now I want to be washed and I want you to change me. So look at this beautiful passage that holds out such great hope as we close. Look at verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. In other words, I don't care what anybody tells you. This is what the Bible says. Fornicators, that's people who are regularly having sex and they're not married. Idolaters, adulterers, that's people who are cheating on their spouses. Effeminate, that, that's the passive person in a homosexual relationship, literally a soft one. Or homosexuals. But notice, this isn't the one sin that keeps you out of heaven. Thieves, covetous people, drunkards. See, the Bible doesn't have any category for disease of alcoholism. It's not your fault. You have a disease. It's drunkenness, and that's a sin, but it's forgivable. Revilers, swindlers shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But here's the good news. This is what the Corinthians, like Paul says, and such were some of you. But that's not who you are anymore. So when this young man says, can I be a Christian homosexual? No, that's not who you are. That's who you were. Now, he says, you were washed. See, if you're a Christian this morning, I don't care what you're struggling with. You've been washed. You're clean as far. Oh, I don't feel clean. God didn't say you feel washed. He says you are washed. The blood of Jesus has washed away my sin. I just sang about it, right? I am not just washed. I'm sanctified. I'm set apart. I'm justified. I'm declared righteous before God. That's good news. And it's all in the name of the Lord Jesus. And it's in the spirit of our God. So if you are a Christian, this is who you are. You're a washed, declared righteous, forgiven sinner who has a chance to go out and love people and serve Jesus. But if you're not a Christian, Jesus is saying, come my way, repent, and I will forgive you. And then lastly, remember this. A church is like a waiting room. But there's two types of waiting rooms, probably more. But you can be in a waiting room at a doctor's office, and you can be a waiting room of a job interview. A lot of people want to come to church like a waiting room of a job interview. When you come for your job interview, you want to show all your good stuff. You want to look good. You want everybody to be impressed that you've got it all together. But when you're waiting in a, in a doctor's office, you want to get in there and get it out on the table and say, Doc, I'm sick. Right? That's what the church is. It's a hospital. It's a place where people should be able to say, hey, I struggle with this or this, and we're not going to get ill, right? So whatever you might be struggling with, whatever shame from your past, maybe you've been abused or 
Maybe you steal. There's, it could be so many things. Nothing to be ashamed of because Christ loves you and he died for you. So let's pray that our church won't be a bunch of hypocrites and self-righteous judges. If you don't struggle with same-sex attraction, I don't struggle with that, but who am I to throw stones? Because I struggle with sin. And all Christians are in recovery. We're being rescued from sin. And we have wonderful good news to take out there and invite people to come and be forgiven. So let's learn from this. Get a book. If not, we'll get some more. Father, thank you. As we bow in prayer, we are so thankful that you rescued us. And Lord, you love this world. You love Bruce Jenner. And you want him to become a Christian. And we pray that he would come to the knowledge of the truth. And Lord, as we engage with our friends and loved ones, so many who have such different opinions about these things, help us to be loving but honest. Lord, rescue us. Rescue our children from all the temptations of this world. As we try to teach them right and wrong, we know they hear a thousand voices begging them as Satan destroys our culture. Lord, we pray for a revival, even in our church, that broken people will be put back together, that no matter what sin people are struggling with, that we might find help, <clears throat> that we might find forgiveness, that we might find hope in the gospel. Lord, help all of us to pray for our families and our children and for our church. And Lord, we have a tremendous opportunity to make an impact here in Bucks County. And we know, Lord, that we'll be persecuted we know that there will be some who will hate us and misunderstand us. But may we love them. May we be gracious to them. May we be full of compassion. And if you're here this morning and you're not sure you're a Christian, while our heads are bowed, if God has spoken to you and you want to be washed and forgiven, right there in your seat, maybe you're a religious sinner, you know, I always judge those people. Now I realize I'm a sinner and I want to be saved. If you want Christ come into your life right there in your seat right now say to him Lord Jesus I believe you died to wash me would you wash me and forgive me would you would you make me a new person I want to follow you Lord if there's anybody that that's your prayer today I want want you to look up at me and raise your hand I want to pray for you don't be embarrassed if you want to follow Christ you want the Lord to wash you anyone at all this morning you say God spoke to me yes praise the Lord anybody else Amen. Anyone else? The Spirit of God is speaking to you. You want Christ. Lord, thank you. Thank you for our time together. Please encourage these folks who want to respond to you to know that you love them and now they can be washed and forgiven. And for those of us who have been washed and forgiven, for those who aren't baptized yet, to show that, may they have the courage to step out and be baptized and to show their new faith in Christ. And for those of us who are following you, Lord, we pray in the days to come that our church will make a strong influence. And like Abraham, we will train many others to be disciples, to do what's right, and to live our lives for Christ. We know Jesus is coming again. Have mercy on our country, Lord. Please don't destroy us. Please don't judge us, Lord, even though we deserve it. For the sake of the Christians in America, have mercy on America. And we thank you for your word, and may our church impact people for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.